Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. To episode 72 of the Keith Law Show, presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. My guest this week is Dr. Sion Bylock. She is now the Dean of Barnard College in New York City. She also wrote a book 11 years ago called Choke, in which she goes into the science of choking, whether in sport or in academic settings or even in the business world. And I thought that was particularly relevant to those of us who cover sports for a living or simply follow it. Is choking real? What do we mean by choking? And as it turns out, there are actually things that people, players, coaches, other people can do to reduce your odds of choking, of underperforming in tough situations. I do have a piece scheduled to run later this week, still working on it but about a player who made a really significant change in his game this year and completely defied my previous expectations for him, which to me are uh, some of the greatest stories. It's great to be wrong about a player in this direction. I would always be wrong about a player and have him turn out to be better than I thought than the reverse. I also hope to return with a new chat this week. Uh, I did have a post go up last week for those of you who follow my board game work. I did have a post go up over at Paste Magazine. I reviewed the game Red Rising and then later reviewed the book Red Rising on my own site. So the board game is derived from the sci-fi book by Pierce Brown. It's a whole series. I just read the first book and also reviewed the game at the same time. You can find that over on Paste Magazine. Finally, I did want to mention for those of you who haven't seen it, I am selling a t-shirt, an Ump Show t-shirt. I am just here for the Ump Show with uh, a little drawing I did, actually, of an umpire, with all the proceeds going to benefit a local group here in Delaware that is helping Afghan refugees who are resettling to the area. If you go to bonfire.com slash umpshow, you can see the shirt. And if you are interested in, uh, obviously, if you buy the shirt there, all of the proceeds that I get will go to Jewish Family Services of Delaware, specifically to their refugee resettlement efforts. You can also just make a donation directly if you'd like to. Several of you have done that. It's JFS, Jewish Family Services, jfsdelaware.org. Thanks to all of you who've supported so far. We are over $700 raised, which I feel like is pretty great from just me throwing together a simple t-shirt design and posting a couple of tweets about it. I really appreciate your support. Uh, I haven't been able to make the donation yet because I don't have the money, but I will keep everyone posted uh, on when that happens and on when I get to begin volunteering for the group as well. I am very pleased to be joined today by my guest, Dr. Sian Bylock. She is the president of Barnard College in New York and previously had spent 12 years as a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To, as well as the book, How the Body Knows Its Mind. Dr. Bylock, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So choking... And, and being clutch or unclutch are huge topics in my world, at least. 
And so that drew me to your book when I heard your interview on the Hidden Brain podcast. I'd love to start if you could operationalize that word for us. What do you mean? What do scientists mean when they talk about choking? Because I have a feeling it's probably different from the way that we use it colloquially in the baseball world. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know it when we see it and experience it ourselves, right? Not even on the pitch um, or the field. We experience it in all forms of life. But I agree, it's really helpful to define what we mean by choking under pressure. And when I talk about it, I mean worse performance than one would expect given their skill level, precisely because they feel pressure associated with the situation. Um, so this is not just performance ups and downs. We all have those. This is ironically when you want to perform at your best, when you feel um, like everything is on the line, when everyone is watching you and you just can't put that best foot forward. I wanna understand what happens in the brain and body when we want to excel and we can't, when we feel pressure to excel. Um, because then I believe that if you can understand it, what's going on, then we can develop really a toolbox of techniques to fix it. So in the baseball world, we often describe players who choke or we talk about players who are who seem to be clutch, even though I think the evidence of players who are clutch is, is weak, um, as possessing some kind of immutable personality traits. But I thought your book made it clear that this, if a player, a person in any walk of life has a propensity to choke, then that can be changed. And I think that's what you're also saying there by building a toolbox and we can potentially change that, uh, that particular trait. So to, to even take one step back, then if you were evaluating a high school or college athlete, and would you just dismiss considerations of that? Say, no, this, this player does seem to maybe choke, but we can change that. Yeah. I mean, I firmly believe that we're not born chokers or clutch players, that it isn't some immutable trait. Um, and that just like you practice anything else, right? I mean, people who are athletic could become professional baseball players, but certainly you have to work really hard and athleticism in itself isn't enough to get you there, right? Um, so just like, like you would practice and, and hone your body and your skills, you have to hone your mind. And I think, you know, that just acknowledging that, that the mental game is something you have to practice like anything else opens up a whole host of possibilities for, for doing that and for being successful. So if I was trying to summarize the message of choke, um, the one thing that I took away more, more than anything else was don't overthink it. So we'll, I'll just start there. I know there's more to the toolbox than that. Hopefully we'll, we'll walk through some of these others. But can you start by just explaining to everyone, assuming you listeners haven't read the book, so what is happening in our brains in these high pressure situations that is different from the way, you know, it's the same swing, the same golf shot, whatever, but suddenly the, the pressure is higher. How, how, are, how are our brains working against us and working differently in those situations? Yeah, I mean, this is why I think pressure situations are so interesting and so interesting to watch and actually interesting to be in, although it might not feel like that at the moment is because you don't know what's gonna happen, right? Just because you have the skill doesn't mean you're actually gonna be able to show it, right? And so that's why the mental aspect is so important. And what my research and others have shown is that I think really counter counterintuitively, what happens in these stressful situations is that we overthink. We start paying too much attention to aspects of what we're doing that should just be run outside of conscious awareness. 
that should be run on autopilot. And let me just give you an example here. You know, if you were shuffling down the stairs and I asked you to think about what you were doing with your knee, this is something you don't think about and you fall on your face, right? And the same thing happens with a well-learned skill. You know, when we get really good at something, that, that front part of our brain, our frontal cortex that helps us monitor every move, it changes what it's focused on. It focuses on the outcome. It's monitoring the end state, like what we do rather than every single step because we're just doing it so fast. And the whole idea is to almost disengage that monitoring from that front part of the brain to just do it, to just let it go um, because you'll be able to do it much more efficiently and faster. And ironically, in these situations, we want to perform so well, we often do the exact opposite. We try and concentrate really hard, or we try and control every movement just to get it just right. And it backfires. So there are two questions I'd like to follow up on that, since you're starting to talk about the, the neurology, I guess, of neuroscience of choking. So you mentioned the prefrontal cortex. I'm just a lay person here, but my understanding is that's one of the last parts of the brain to develop. In, in our world, we're in baseball, we're evaluating players often in, in the international free agent market. We're evaluating players who are 13 or 14, and the prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing until we're into our 20s. So, that's right. is, yeah. uh, so is that a, in addition to the toolbox you're talking about? Is it just kind of irrational to think about that, to start talking about wh what the players are like and he choked, he didn't perform well under pressure. He's 14. <laughs> that part of his brain is barely getting started developing. Am I on the well, right track I mean, there? I actually think it's irrational to to decide someone's a choker or a thriver at any age, right? Okay, great. always change what the brain does. But it's mm -hmm. true that the frontal cortex doesn't stop developing until well into your early 20s and a, a bit later in guys than girls. I just, you know, it's just the data. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that the frontal cortex does is it um, helps modulate those emotional responses, right? So usually the frontal cortex and more um, emotionally charged areas of our brain, like our amygdala, for example, they kind of work in unison. Um, and the frontal cortex, when, um, it's, when it's not as developed, doesn't have as much control right, over these emotional areas of the brain. And it's why teenagers often make irrational decisions, right? So the emotional area is all ready to go, it's adults and the frontal cortex playing catch up. Um, and it's why I do think it's important to start developing techniques that kids and younger players can use early to get a hold of their emotions um, and to get over a hold of their fear and worry. Because remember when I talked about choking, I talked about it as worst performance when you feel pressure. You know, when, so how do you help them get sort of feel less pressure in those situations or techniques that help them adapt their anxiety? Um, and those techniques can be really great as they learn and as their brain develops over time. The other neuroscience question. Um, so I'm a bit familiar with the concept of working memory because I have a child who got a proper evaluation for ADHD. And so I had to learn all of these terms that comes up very frequently in choke. So can you just, again, for the audience who don't know, doesn't know that term, define that and what do you see as its role in how we perform differently in these high pressure situations? Yeah, I mean, you can think of working memory as really um, what we're focusing on at any given time and our ability to hold information in memory. And it's limited, right? Because we don't focus on everything. If we focused on everything in our environment, we'd be over 
working memory is so important when we're strategizing or when we are, you know, reading the play of a situation or deciding maybe what, how we're going to hit or how we're going to pitch. And one of the things that happens with working memory is when we're in these pressure situations, we're worrying. We have this like internal monologue about the situations, its consequences, what it's going to mean, who's watching us, how our team's going to feel. And it's as if we're doing two things at once, right? So just like driving and talking on the cell phone is a bad idea. Even if it's hands-free, we know the data are very clear that you, you're distracted, right? Um, we're not good at doing thing, two things at once, even though every teenager and and tween, including my own, will tell me they're great multitaskers. We're really not. Um, and so what happens in these stressful situations is that not only do we have this propensity to start overanalyzing and overthinking, we actually um, don't have all of our resources at our disposal because part of it's taken up with this internal monologue of worry. Uh, I have a teenager too, so I absolutely see that at play pretty much every day around the house. Uh, so uh, as I was saying earlier, we, we sign players in the baseball world, particularly young. It's true in a couple of other sports as well. Um, in baseball, we can't sign these international free agents until they're 16. In the draft, they generally finish high school, so they're 17 or 18. But it's a development industry. The idea is we sign them when they're very young. They spend many years in the minor leagues before they get to the majors. And it's generally about developing physical skills while their bodies mature. And one of the other lessons I really got out of Choke was there can and should be a parallel process of mental skills development. Some teams do do things like this, but it varies pretty widely. But the, and I'm going back to the toolbox you were talking about earlier. Can you give me some examples from any sport, maybe of the building those tools or what I, I, I think of as the, the word I associated with it was scaffolding. You're just very, you're, it seems like you're very slowly starting to build these up from a young age so that when they get to the majors in baseball or whatever other sport, which is the highest pressure situation they'll face, they've got some experience or you've put some tools in the toolbox so they're better prepared the first time they face those situations. Yeah, I love this sort of talking about developing the physical skills as their body matures and also then I would argue developing the mental skills as their brain matures, right? And you're just putting down neural pathways the same way you're trying to create muscle patterns, right? Um, right, so how do you build that toolbox? Well, the first thing is to get them used to being in pressure situations and failing, right? So a lot of these kids, I imagine, are really successful, right? And so... My guess, and I've seen this, is that sometimes, you know, players move up to the next level and they just don't know how to cope with not being the best or not fa or failing, right? And so as they've gone up, it's been, you know, they've been told there's been this sort of rhetoric that, oh, you know, you just have it. Like, you're, you're super talented. You've got the, the beam and, you know, you just have what it takes, right? And really the... The, the dialogue needs to be around how hard you have to work and how hard you've already worked to get there, right? So this issue when a player all of a sudden gets to a very high level and they've been told all their life that they're just naturally talented is that they don't oftentimes understand or appreciate the power of how hard they're going to have to work at the next level. Um, and when they fail, they take that as a sign that maybe they don't have the talent, not as a sign that they don't have the hard work. 
And this is sort of a roundabout way to talk about something that Carol Dweck talks about, who's a psychologist with the growth mindset. So this idea that people either think that you get better through practice or you're good because it's endowed. And I imagine a lot of the young kids you're seeing or, or people are seeing in baseball have been told throughout their life that they just have it, right? They've practiced, but they just have something special. And the danger of sort of thinking that way is that when you don't perform well, you start doubting if you have that special thing. And it leads to a lack of self-confidence. It might lead you not to try as hard. It might lead you not to want to put yourself in situations where you can't sh show how great you are. And so um, really there's part of this development that's about talking to the players about how hard they're going to work and how it's all hard work to get to the next level, right? And I think that's just an important sort of overlay in terms of how to develop these players. So you make me think of an old baseball axiom of the problem of a player, the particularly talent, particularly talented player who's just never failed until he reaches the major leagues, um, which does happen. Um, you know, I would even argue Mike Trout, who's probably the best player in baseball history, at least based on his performance, he seems to be. Um, he succeeded in high school and then he ripped through the minor leagues and he would, despite being the youngest player pretty much everywhere he played, he was always the best player. He got to the major leagues and for the first time, it was only about a hundred at bats, maybe a month or so in the major leagues, but he did not succeed right out of the shoot. And he went back to the minors. And then by the time he came back to the majors the following year, he was, he was Mike Trout. He was the player we know now. Um, but it is often seen in baseball or, de or described uh, by baseball people that that's bad. The idea that, oh, he never failed before, so he doesn't know how to deal with failure. And trying to learn to deal with failure for the first time in your life, in your baseball life, as a major leaguer would appear to be harder. Maybe just because the pressure is so much greater, people are really paying attention, you're having to deal with outside criticism maybe for the first time. And if I'm interpreting everything you're saying correctly, you would, you would agree with that. It's better if you can set it up to have these guys fail or at least face different pressure situations before they reach the major leagues. Do I have that correct? Yeah, I think it's really true in stretching them, like having them play with players that are just better than them, more advanced, mm -hmm. older, at least, you know, in some situations. Because what you want to instill at the, in, in them is a mindset that the way they're going to get better is through practice. I mean, the danger of just sort of being the most talented is that when you do fail, you wonder how you succeed, right? If you're just the most talented and you're born like that, there's there's nothing you can do, right? If you fail, mm -hmm. you're just not the most talented. But if you had to work to be the most talented and then you're not the most talented, well, you know what to do, you work. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, based on a long line of psychological research where my favorite study was around this was they brought, you know, first graders into their lab at Stanford and they said to some of them, they played this game, you know, they some made up game and they said to some of them, you know, you're really great at this game. I can see you're just naturally talented. And then to others, they said, oh, I can see how hard you work to be really good at this game. And then what they did is they said to each of those two groups, the one they told that were talented and the one that they said worked hard, they said, okay, now you get to play another game. Do you want the easy or the hard game? Do you know who chose the easy game and who chose the hard game? Oh, I know because I've heard this <laughs> study, but yes. <laughs> so it turns out that the kids who had just been told they're talented chose the easy game. Yeah. 
because they didn't want to be in a situation where they would show they're not talented, where they would fail. But the kids who had been told that they got better through effort were willing to choose the hard game because if you failed, it wasn't that you didn't have it. It was that you just hadn't worked the right way. I think it's such a powerful message because it's so easy as we're training, especially elite players, to continually instill in them that they're just special. They have something special. And that all might be true, but that specialness is not enough. And when push comes to shove, they're going to have to work really, really, really hard. And they're not always going to be the most special. And so what you're trying to do, going back to the notion of scaffolding that you talked about, is start building in them this resilience so that, and a psychological resilience so that when they have a bad game, when they don't succeed, when they don't make that team, when they don't do exactly what they want, they have a path forward. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So one of the counter arguments or criticisms I've heard, again, this, these are sort of longstanding baseball axioms that you know, often they're not really grounded in evidence, they're grounded in anecdote, but it's that you can't simulate that kind of pressure. You, you have to have been there before. There's a huge benefit. You know, you, have you been to the playoffs before in the majors? Oh, you haven't. Well, there's no way to simulate mm-hmm. that. And my guess from from reading Choke is that you'd say there's some truth to that. But again, returning to the scaffolding concept, we can simulate this in steps. We can build up, uh, maybe it's a pressure tolerance or, or maybe that's the wrong way to describe it, but that you would give people tools to deal with smaller situations and build them up so that, okay, maybe they haven't faced this degree of pressure before, but they face something close to it and they have had to overcome smaller degrees of adversity so that they're better prepared for those situations. Am, am I, again, am I summarizing that portion, those portions of the book correctly. I, I agree. I think that um, we're really great at learning by analogy. We don't have to simulate everything 100%. And I think we can get pretty close to what it feels like. It's not going to be exact, of course. But I mean, remember, you know, when the sort of 
the high stress situation comes, um, it's it's going to play out the same way in our brain and body. So maybe it doesn't matter how much stress is on the outside, right? If we are reacting to it like we're stressed, that's enough, right? And I can name 10 situations that I could, would stress you out right now and probably lots of baseball players. Um, and simulating those helps. It gets you used to what it's going to be like. So I'm going to get inside baseball just for a moment here. We've had a, a major change in the way the minor leagues work uh, since pre- this year compared to previous to the to the pandemic and the lost minor league season of last year. But um, they eliminated some of the lower levels of the minor league so that now when most players enter minor league baseball, they're going directly to play in organized leagues at the spring training complexes in Florida and Arizona, but there are no fans there. And I have long believed that while that might be useful just in terms of playing at the appropriate level of competition, it's kind of not great to play with nobody watching. That seems yeah. like it's right. It seems like at that point, it's just practice. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, fans add pressure mm-hmm. uh, and people watching you add pressure. I mean, we know that, you know, if you're going to give a speech and you have to do it in front of a mirror, you do it to your, in front of a mirror and watch mm-hmm. yourself. That's nerve wracking. Like mm-hmm. people don't, it's a great way to practice and people don't want to do it. because It's uncomfortable, but um anything that helps simulate, you know, other people watching you, what it's going to be like. If you walk, you know, if you walk into any football stadium on a college or university campus on Friday afternoon and they're practicing, they have the music cranked up, right? They're trying Mm -hmm. to simulate the loud, what it's going to feel like to have fans there. And, you know, I talk a lot and choke about this idea of closing the gap between training and competition. You're trying to practice like you're going to perform. And um, we often don't do that. Yeah, that's I again. I think that's that. I'm glad to hear that because I've argued against this sort of contract. It was a financial move. It, it was entirely to save money. But now we have more players playing at those complex leagues. Um, and I used when I used to live in Arizona, I would often go to those games for scouting purposes. And it would be me, maybe three scouts, and like mom and dad. It's friends and family, <laughs> and that's it. And sometimes we'd be playing even in a the major league teams spring training facility, which could seat, you know, five to 10,000 people, but there's nobody there. You could literally have an entire section of the stadium to yourself. And I remember posting, even tweeting a photograph 10 years ago or so and saying, you know, great seats still available, right? Anybody could walk in off the street and watch, but with nobody there, it almost felt worse. I I, I don't know. I'm not in the player's shoes, but it felt very artificial. Like we are not simulating anything. Yes. The pitching is real that pitcher is trying to get you out but there's no way you're simulating any of the or, or scaffolding them for the higher levels of pressure as they continue to work their way up through the minors yeah and it goes back to this idea that you can have really great skill i mean and not show it when it matters how many world records are broken that we don't know about right mm-hmm. situations <laughs> that just unfortunately does not matter right and that's why we watch sports right if you mm-hmm. could I mean, if you could mathematically decide who's going to win the team, win the the game in baseball based on their stats, then why even have a game? Um, it's funny because as somebody who's spent a lot of time working with the, with statistics, also I get that we you, you know the, we we play the we still play the games. If you think you know who's better, why would we even play the games? I like the games actually. The games are really fun. <laughs> I can like the stats and I can also like the games. Yeah, and I think you know what is really interesting is that the stats you know, don't capture everything, right? They don't capture the 
sort of human mindset that's going to play out in the pressure situation or play out based on whether someone's left one day or the other. They certainly tell you a lot, but what's so interesting is that you don't have all the information. Yes. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask uh, is out of slightly personal interest. I mentioned having a teenager. We have standardized tests coming up soon. She has not begun that, but it's coming up very soon. And I certainly reading your book, uh, Reading Choke, it brought back a lot of memories of classmates of mine in high school who were very high achievers in the classroom. Uh, but when it came time for standardized tests, they would just not perform as well. Um, and then, and that would even breed anxiety. I think of one student in particular who later became a surgeon. He did, he got through it eventually, but he would work himself into a state because he had decided he wasn't able to handle the pressure of these standardized tests at one point. And then that would just feed on further worse performance. And from reading Choke, it seems like it's pretty much the same set of cognitive processes. So how would you scaffold? You said you have a teenager too. How, what <laughs> kinds of things should we be doing with our yeah. kids as they fit? I mean, they're tested all the time, Yeah. right? So what? how do we do that to try to simulate um, the appropriate pressure? First of all, like getting tested all the time has some benefits because you're used to it, right? But as you think about tests like the ACT or the SAT, really thinking about practicing and practicing in the situations you're going to perform under. So um, I, my oldest, when she was preparing for the ACT, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to get her help with a tutor and, and get her practicing. But I also made her go, they'd have these optional Saturday morning practice tests you could take in like a big lecture hall with other people. And she was like, why do I have to do this? I can just take it at home. And I was like, no, <laughs> you have to go take it in the real situation. And, you know, I remember driving her there and she forgot her pencil and it was nine in the morning on a Saturday and she's screaming at me. And, you know, it simulated what she was going to have to like do when it was actually, I made her take like seven of them in these Saturday mornings. She was so mad at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was because, you know, we closed this gap, gap between training and competition. And, you know, I think it's a legitimate argument that not everyone has the resources to be able to do that. And so are you, you know, you're missing something with the test, which is, I, you know, as a, as a college president um, who we use those tests, um, mm -hmm. you know, I would just say that we really look at admissions holistically and it's just one piece of a very large puzzle. Yes. Um but the practice is a huge one and practicing in stressful situations. Um, and the second thing I would say is like putting it in context that it is not the end all be all of everything that's going to happen in your daughter's life. Um, and continually talking about that in that way. Um, we often are our own worst memories and making uh, enemies and making something way more important than it is. And um you know, depending on how old your daughter is, I don't know what year she is, um, but, you know, she is a, there's many schools right now in the, the immediate time that don't even look at tests. Yes. Yes. I, uh, I'm kind of heartened uh, to see how many schools have either, as you said, you know, it's holistically, we're sort of, they're, they're de-emphasizing the tests or leaving them out altogether because obviously there's, there's a whole host of, of problems with those tests in terms of bias towards certain backgrounds, et cetera. So, um, and also, yeah, the way that they, the pressure that I see put on, my daughter hasn't done that. She's in 10th grade. So she's just starting it, but she has classmates, uh, friends at the school who are going through the process and comes home and describes it. And her eyes get really wide because she's starting to understand 
the pressure of going through the college admissions process and friends who are taking these tests. It's like, wait, is this what I'm headed for? At, you know, I'm <laughs> driving 70 miles an hour and what is that in the road right there? Uh, just a couple things as a college president and mm-hmm. you know, Barnard is one of the most selective schools in the country. So um, I know, you know, it's a pressure environment. We see that every day in terms of our students applying. I'll say a couple of things. One is that uh, you can remind your daughter that we're most all the neuroscience research shows that when, you know, you're really most anxious is before you have to start something. So like um, when we have people who are scared of math, do math problems in the brain scanner, we see the emotional alarm signals go off, not when they're doing the math, but when we tell them they're going to about to do it. So it's all about this what ifs. So it's kind of helpful to know that it's a lot of this is the anticipation and once she's in it, it won't seem as bad. So sometimes it's helpful to know that. And the second is that I would just say is there's not one college or university that's perfect for any one person. There's lots of different options with great education. And um, I think that's just really important for students to keep in mind. My guest today has been Dr. Sian Bailak. She is the president of Barnard College, a former professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. And we've been talking about her 2010 book, Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To. Dr. Bylock, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Obviously, Labor Day weekend is coming up ahead of any big holiday weekend. I usually have my exhortation to please be careful out there on the roads. These are always uh, the most dangerous weekends of the year. More people are on the road. People are also drinking and driving. Those things tend to lead to more accidents. But also, if you are going to any kinds of gatherings, please wear your masks. Please be vaccinated. Things are getting worse out there. And it is going to require even more of an effort from all of us to try to slow this thing down before we get into the winter and things just tend naturally tend to take a turn towards the worst because we're inside more often. So again, please go get vaccinated if you haven't done so. If you know people in your life who are some for some reason hesitating, see if you can coax them. I will be happy to answer anyone who is on the fence right now about getting vaccinated. All the evidence is in favor of these vaccines being safe and effective. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, everyone.